Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello everyone, this is Tanner, and this is the Muscle Lens Podcast. This is Iowa, right? You talk. Iowa, I believe. Yeah. Who are you? That's my mom. Episode, we'll start off with, um, uh, the area known, now known as Iowa is home to Native American tribes 13,000 years before European settlement. About 17 tribes reside in Iowa region at various points in history, including Iowa, for which state is named the, the Missouri uh, by the blend period 1000 BCE to 1000 CE they are using areas rich soil to grow crops like corn and have established complex societies these peoples will eventually be driven out of the area by social and political upheaval and US I was admitted to the Union as 29 states on December 28 1846 as a Midwestern state Iowa forms a bridge between the forests of the East and the grasslands of the high prairie plains to the west. It's generally rolling landscapes rises which forms uh, some things that happened. 1673 French explorers Louis Gillet and Father how do you say that word? Uh, okay, uh, explored for the king of France. Uh, they canoed down the Wisconsin River and then down the Mississippi River to the mouth of Arkansas River. Upon the return of the to Montreal, uh, Gillette's journal was lost a canoe capsized, and our information about the expedition comes from Marquette's journal and map. They supposedly landed on the west bank of the Mississippi and met with some Native American Indians, and most people believe that the site was near the mouth of the Isle River. All the journal says is that it was near the mouth. <coughs> 1682, La Salle explored the Mississippi River from its mouth and claimed the river and all land drained by it for the king, for the king of France. It's upon the claim of La Salle that France claimed the interior of North America. Such means of making land claims by planting a flag at the mouth of a river and claiming all land drained by the river and its uh, tributaries were common at the time. The area was known as Louisiana after King Louis IV. The Mechanin and Iowa was admitted to the Union under the provision First white's catfish hired to do most of the solid Okay. Uh, 1800. Gerard's land claim was where the town of Marquis was later built. And it was mostly for fur trading purposes. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, Spain became a satellite of France. And the Mississippi River area was transferred back to France under pressure from Napoleon. Spain accent exerted very little control or contact with the area north of St. Louis. 
1803, the United States acquires Iowa, Iowa in the Louisiana Purchase. President Thomas Jefferson wished to purchase trading rights at New Orleans so that American products and would have free navigation of the Mississippi River to ocean-going ships. For administration, the Louisiana Purchase was divided into the upper and lower districts of Louisiana, with capitals at St. Louis and New Orleans, respectively. This was mostly a paper transaction because there was no legal permanent residence in the area except Native American Indians and this administration did not apply to them. 1804. In another paper transaction, the district, the district of Louisiana was created with practical administration of which there was none assigned to the territory of Indiana. The Lewis and Clark exploration were to make contact with the Native American Indians, chart flora and fauna, and investigate the economic resources. Uh, Sergeant Lloyd, Sergeant Floyd, sorry, died of appendix. Damn, what's that? Appendicitis. Appendix. It's like I guess it's appendix rupture. Uh, while camped just south of the present sweet su- city, uh, he was buried there, and later a tall obelisk was constructed and designated as a national historic landmark. He's the first white American known to have been buried in what would become. Iowa, and he's the only soldier to die in the Lewis and Clark expedition. Several members of the Silk tribe were in St. Louis, but none, but with no authority to act for the tribe in any treaties. The American authorities led these Indians to become intoxicated, and this is the condition for forcing them to sign a treaty giving away tribal lands. Uh, Musquicky, not Fox, this area has been related by the government until the present. 1805, uh, Pike's expedition was ordered to investigate the Mississippi River above St. Louis, noting, noting especially the rivers, prairies, islands, mines, quarries, timber, and Indian villages and settlements. Pike later explored the Rocky Mountains west where a peak in Colorado is named for him. In yet another paper transaction, Iowa became part of the Louisiana Territory. 1806, in a trip back down the Missouri River, Lewis and Clark again camped on the Iowa side but it made no further impact on the future state. Uh, 1808, the U.S. Army built Fort Madison. 1812, when Louisiana was uh, admitted by the Union as a state, the northern part of the Louisiana Purchase territory was renamed Missouri. 1813, after being besieged twice during the war that the United States called the War of 1812, the garrison abandoned the fort and burned it as they escaped downriver to St. Louis. What? So they got... So they got attacked like twice, and they're like, fuck this, I'm getting out of here. So they burned down the fort and it, like went down the river. Uh, 1820, the Missouri Compromise makes Iowa a non slave state, non slave territory. 1824, uh, a treaty signed in St. Louis with the Sac and Fox tribe locates their claims to 119 acres in, would be, in what would be Lee County. Uh, 1830, the neutral ground. With a 40 mile wide strip of land running from the northeast corner of the state in a southwesterly direction to the upper fork of the Desmond River. <laughs> Nathan Boone, one of Daniel Boone's sons, was a surveyor on this land. The treaty was signed on 15 of July, 1830. 1832. Uh, 1832, after the military expedition sometimes called the Black Hawk War. The Sauk tribe was forced to cede land on the west side of the Mississippi River to, in the, to the United States. 
1833. As a result of the treaty in 21 September 1832, the Black Hawk land was opened to legal white settlement after June 1, 1833. Uh, law enforcement w- was law in the area, and the need for formal structure of government led to the attachment of the Iowa area to Michigan. 1836, opening the Kuk Reserve to white settlement increased the land area available for claims on the west side of the Mississippi River and moved the Suck and Mesquite further to the interior. 1837, with the opening of the new land to White Solomon, removal of the white of the Native American Indian tribes further west was made necessary. The panic of 1837 slowed population growth and caused the failure of the only bank in the Iowa area, the Myers Bank of Bukoy. The most severe effects of, the, of this depression were not felt in Iowa until, until 1838. 1838, Congress creates the Iowa Territory. 1839, Abner Neeland was a pacifist who had been prosecuted and persecuted in his native Massachusetts. He gathered followers and came to Iowa to be free from organized religion. 1840, the land that became Iowa was counted in the 1836 and 1838 was caused in territorial census. Iowa had 10,531 people in 1836 and 22,000 859 in 1838. This rapid growth of population continued until the end of the 19th century. 1841, Fort Atkins was built to house, house the army, whose function was to keep the Winnebago from turning to Wisconsin and also to, to protect them from attacks by sweet and salt words. Sweet. Uh, 1843, additional land was opened to white settlement and Native American Indians were forced farther and farther west. The Red Rock Line extended from the neutral grounds to the Missouri border running through Marion, Lucas, and Wayne counties. 1844, the Legislative Assembly provided for a vote on Constitutional Convention, and a popular vote was favored of one. The convention met in Iowa City and drafted a constitution. 1845, the bill for Iowa statehood was passed by both houses of Congress and signed into law by President John Tyler by create different boundaries than those drawn by the Constitutional Convention. Popular vote rejected the con- congressional bill because of the boundaries. A third and last so-called Sachs and Fox section opened a vast area of central and southern Iowa to white settlement and effectively removed the Sauk and Muskogee uh, from Iowa in a legal sense. Uh, 1840-1846, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly referred to as Mormons, started across the Mississippi River in February, and nearly 20,000 people began to trek across southern Iowa. The Potawatomi Session removed Native American Indian title to a vast slice of land in western Iowa and led to removal of more Indians to reservations in Kansas and later in Oklahoma. Iowa became the 29th state. Ansel Briggs was elected the first governor of the state of Iowa on 26th of October 1846. Before Iowa had been admitted to the Union and the newly elected General Assembly of the State of Iowa met on November 30th, 1846. Also before Iowa has been admitted to the Union, the statehood 
The statehood bill was passed by the House of Representatives on uh, December 12th, 1846, by Senate on December 24th, 1846, assigned to law on December 28th, 1846. All conditions of the Congressional Act was formally accepted by the General Assembly on January 15th, 1847. William F. Coy's birth is claimed by the McCausland and LeClaire, who lived in both places. 1847, the great seal of the state of Iowa is used on official documents, such as bills that became law, and all proclamations of government. The descriptions of the seal has not been changed since 25 of February 1846-1847. Although State University was created by with board of trustees, no classes were held until 1855. The Dutch settlers, a religious group led by Dominic Hendrik Peter Solot, are only one example of the many ethnic and linguistic groups which settled in Iowa during the 19th century. 1848 to 1849, Fort Atkins, Oregonian, the Winnebago School was moved to Minnesota, and by terms of treaty on February 4th, 1847, the Winnebago surrendered their rights to land and neutral ground and agreed to move to a reservation north of the Minnesota River within one year. The Army moved most of the Winnebago during the summer of 1848. 1850, three territorial and state censuses were taken between 1840 and 1850. In 1844, there were 75,152 people. In 1846, there were 112,388 people. In 1847, there were 116,454 people. And in 1849, there were 154,573 people. Uh... Land in Iowa, in the section of the state. The building of the railroad republic fragment, but regular to the church for arrives far as the railroad was built to Iowa spell never left Iowa 1845. And those that did mention the General Assembly passed an act. The federal government began report the railroads were not complete and the cap- capital was moved to Des Moines from Iowa Society. Banks, Daver of Iowa, natural disaster, various, and various solutions. In 1860, in the States, was an out, outpouring of established Porter. Oh, I'm sorry. Support by and by Iowa. Iowa State Act was 18 more safe and also death. It also Republican Party in Iowa politics. Alec developed to improve the education. The Iowa Dana Camilla really hard on the farmers who were already more civil. War, which teachers train lawyer. He is also one of two Iowa ethics and ultimate industry. In 1884, the new Capitol building, the same one now in use, was dedicated at the 18 agri mm. frolics mm. invention of the gasoline. Ugh. The Iowa by Africa 96 touch. So Nineteen hundreds, they start settling, start settling in and moving much of the Native Americans out. And by the eighteen uh, sixties, after Civil War, they start uh, changing to more industrial. It changed the. It, if I remember from history class in high school, like it, like they had to completely change how their economics system worked because it was mostly based on like uh, farming. 
Yeah. But now they had to change it to more industrial. Stuff like that. Right. And the, plus the banks were fucking, like you said, uh, 1900, Carrie Lint, Clinton Lane Chapman Cat. What is, who was the most famous woman suffrage leader in history? 1901, Albert Baird Cummings was known as a progressive governor and also as a national leader of the progressive wing of the Republican Party, which became a U.S. senator. The clubs started by Jesse Fields in a rural school she taught in Page County served as a prototype for the Boys and Girls 4-H clubs. 1902, the Accession Department at Iowa State College was extremely important in improving the life of farm families in Iowa. 1905, automobiles broke the physical isolation of the farms and small towns and were also the leading cause of the decline of businesses in small towns after people could drive to larger towns for shopping. 1908, Allison holds the record for length of service by Iowan in the Congress. 1910, this is the first federal census in Iowa's history to show a declining population. There was no further declines until the census of 1990. 1911, the tune for the Son of Iowa is the same as the for Maryland, my, Maryland, my Maryland, both taken from the German Christmas song, O Tannenbaum, which translates as O Christmas Tree. Many people think that the Iowa corn song is a state song, but it is not and never has been. 1912, rural health became to be recognized as an issue that needed attention. This is still one of the tenets of the medical School at the <coughs> University of Iowa, and the problem of finding doctors to serve in small towns in Iowa is an ongoing problem. 1913, the completion of the Kulik Dam. 1917, Camp Dodge served as a major training center for African American officers during World War I. Merle Hay, which arguably the first American soldier, killed in combat. In World War One, he was one of the three soldiers killed simultaneously in France by a shell explosion. 1918, Marion Crandall, a teacher of French at St. Catherine's School in Devonport, volunteered by service with the French Canteen Service. She was killed in a war zone by an exploding shell, the first American woman to die in the combat zone during World War One. Governor Harding issued a proclamation which forbade the use of any language but English in public gatherings of two or more people. This was named the Babel Proclamation, and in speeches, the governor consistently referred to the American language. Uh, the Farm Bureau was formed to revival the Farmers Union, which many people feared might be subversive. Uh, 1919, radio changed the lives of Iowans by bringing news, culture, and entertainment into their homes. 1920, Air Mayor with Air Mail the refinement of the commission system of the day, I was on the first transcontinental air mail route. 1922, following ratification of the 19th Amendment, women not only voted, but they ran for office as well. May Francis was the first woman elected to a statewide office in Iowa. 1926, Pioneer Hybrid International was the first major company uh, to, uh, to commercially market hybrid seed corn. There's reference corn yields per acre in Iowa and it led to Iowa's position as a provider of food to the world. Uh, 1928, Herbert Hoover is the first person born in Iowa to be elected President of the United States. His birthplace is in West Branch, 
is observed as a museum by the National Park Service and is Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch is operated by the National Archives. Hoover and his wife are buried on a site. Paula? Caroline Pendry was the first woman elected to either house Iowa legislator, and she was elected to the House in 1928 and the Senate in 1932. In 1932, Vala Babak Miller, as Secretary of State, was responsible for the foundings of the Ohio State Patrol, one of the first some agencies in the nation. The Farmers Holiday Association was in response to the suffering of farmers during the Depression of the 1920s and 1930s. In 1936, this year is remembered as probably the worst in Iowa history of, for bad weather. The summer was unusually hot and dry, and the winter was unusually cold, and there was heavy snow. In 1937, while, I, while a professor at Iowa State College, Ant, uh, Anton Ossoff and the graduate student did experimental work that laid the foundations for the modern computer industry. 1940, Henry Agard Wallace is the first Iowa to be elected the office of Vice President of the United States. 1941, entry to World War II ended the agricultural depression Iowa and, and, and Iowa and led to unparalleled prosperity for farmers. 1942, women were first accepted to military service in the WAACs and the first training center for them was in Des Moines. Colonel Mildred uh, Kathy Horton, a former college president, was the first commander of the Union. Unit. Uh, the death of the five Sullivan brothers was a great single casualty disaster for one family in the entire war. Because of the incident that our existing role against brothers serving in the same unit was always thereafter enforced. 1946, John Mount was won the Nobel Prize for his work with an international YMCA. 1948, Wallace's campaign for president was unsuccessful. He joined James Bard Weaver as another Iowan who ran for president as a candidate of a third party. It was during this election that Weaver's record for third party popular and electoral votes was broken. Because of Wallace and the Progressive Party and the candidacy of J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina was the Dixiecrat Party. In 1948, television Revolutionized by the communications industry as the radio had done 30 years before, Iowa was served by TV from the first. 1958, 55, uh, not, the NFO was founded to combat the age-old problem of low price performers in a market system that was out of their control. 1958, Dr. Ben Allen, as a professor of astronomy and space science at the University of Iowa, Led the nation experiments involving the space race. 1970, Borlaug won the Nobel Prize for this work in promoting the green evolution. He developed strains of disease resistant wheat. 1976, the Iowa caucus changed the form and substance of the choice of presidential candidates. Uh, 1986, Justice Newman became the first woman to serve on the Iowa Supreme Court. Lieutenant Governor Zimmerman was the first woman to hold this executive office in Iowa. 1989, Iowa I-2I is a class through Iowa Wesleyan College. It involves immersive in things and people Iowan. 
and includes lectures on general subjects on both travel to little-known places throughout the state. 1990, Attorney General Campbell was the first woman to hold this executive office in Iowa. 1993, flooding causes more than $2 billion in damage. 1995, through clerical oversight, the law adapting Iowa's flag was never officially enrolled. With this being known, the legislature quickly remedied the oversight. In 1999, upon completing the his fourth four-year term in office, Terry Branson holds the record for most years as governor's Iowa's governor. 16, breaking the former record held by his immediate predecessor, Robert Ray, 14 years. It was during the administration of Governor Ray that the term length was changed from two years to four years, although the first two governors of the state of Iowa also served four-year terms. There you go. Yeah, Paul, eat your cookies. We got cookies all over the floor. Yeah, he takes free cookies and hides them. My dog. Yeah. Okay, guys, we're in the 21st century in Iowa. 2000 track train derailment. derailment. 2002, six people, including <coughs> a four, including four mail carriers, injured when mailbox bombs designated Egyptian arrest Delhi Dam failed. 2012, China's next leader, Xi Jin. Right. First monster. It's called the Van Meter. It's called the Van Meter monster. Van Meter. It's, uh. All right, I'll tell you. You. Uh, imagine what a smartphone now twenty three, Van Meter could have accomplished. Instead of shouldering shotguns and blasting away at eight foot windy creature with a forehead horn that casts a beam of light, what? Uh, panic citizens could have quickly posted a YouTube video. Case closed. Monster confirmed. Camping out all night, 102 years later, at an old coal mine outside of town where the alleged creature is believed to have lived, a researcher of odd legends is still trying to get sight of it. Chad Lewis survived his assignment. He was not abducted nor scooped up by a flying creature, but he has a good story to tell. In his wanderings of Van Meter, he unearthed a legend that was dying out with the old timers, and tonight he'll tell it at the old high school gym. The story offers a glimpse of rural Iowa history and lore. The superstitious uh, mindset at the turn of the last century oddly, oddly mirrors a resurgent of 21st century trend of a Bigfoot hunting and paranormal investigating that populate cable television today. Lewis also had appeared on network and cable shows to discuss his own monster alien chasing across the globe. But the Minneapolis 38-year-old said he was particularly captivated by a creature he dubbed the Van Meter Visitor. He purposely chose a non-threatening name. One shouldn't assume the winged creature did not come in peace. The story goes like this. Oh. Say something. Hello? The story goes like this. Over a series of nights in the fall of 1903, several respected and prominent men of Van Meter reported a half-human half animal with enormous smooth bat wings flying about. It let off a powerful stench and scared the daylight out of them because it moved at speeds never seen before. And it shot a, a blinding light from its... Shots were fired each time. First by 
implement dealers, dealer UG Griffin as it flew across building tops. The monster shrugged them off like a minor nuisance. The next night, the town doctor and bank cashier Peter Dunn separately saw the creature and opened fire. Dunn even took a plaster case of the great three-toed track. Well, over here. Uh, the following night, O.V. White, reportedly a dead eye with a gun, was awakened from his slumber in his quarter above the hardware store and shot at the creature that was perching atop a telephone pole. This awakened Sidney Gregg, what are these, these freaking names are awful, uh, who had been sleeping in his n store nearby. Gregg said the monster hopped like a kangaroo. Even a local high school teacher saw it, indeed it was some sort of antediluvian monster. It seems there was never a uh, decent pitchfork and torch gathering these days, but back then, townsmen were not averse to taking up arms and forming a posse. So, to the west, so to the northwest side of Van Meteor, they charged near the old brickyard where J.L. Platt Jr. heard a noise down by the abandoned coal mine. Presently, the noise opened up again. As though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for battle, according to an oracle, to an oracle in the Desmonoise Daily News on October 3rd, 1903, the monster appeared, drawing by a smaller version. In the brilliant light, they sailed away, only to return to in the morning where the men had gathered to rid the earth of them, with their firepower heard far and wide. The reception they received would have sunk the Spanish fleet, but aside from unearthly noise, Peculiar ore that did not seem to mind it, but slowly descended the shaft of the old mine, never to be seen again. Lewis found the oracle and was struck by the fact that such prominent men would put their names to such a story. These weren't town drunks, he said. He came to Van Manor with the help of local librarian, Jolene Walker, also found the legend has survived the generations of the town's Town's Sentinel book. Old timers remember it, he said, through their opinions of their of its intensity. Uh, very. Those guys would have wanted their publicity. Walker said of eyewitnesses accounts, "Was a van meter visitor real? It depends on your belief system. I know this is there is good, and I know there is evil." She said, "I believe there is a god, so I believe there is a demon. I'm, not, I'm saying it was evil." Walker even drove the gravel road out of the abandoned brick plant after her consolations with Lewis. I never want to go up there again, I tell you that, she said. I tried to back up the car, and I don't know if it was loose gravel, but I couldn't back up right away. I'm thinking, what is going on? I'm getting out of here. Lewis made the rounds in his research, strange, finding strange stories in Bahamia, ghosts at the old high school and basement of the town bar, and servants in the river. Not to his surprise, intersecting graphical elements, he says, are said to have uncanny energy. Energy? Ah, energy? The Raccoon River branches meet near the town. I still thought this would be a fun but short, he said. We would find out this is a hoax, no doubt, in my mind. He banned his car at a non-profit to chase the paranormal, but his master's degree in psychology came in handy. 
He gives dozens of pre- presentations each year and has, several, has written several books. Latest is Bandmeter Visitor, co-authors Noah Voss and Kevin Lee Nelson at Launches Today. When he first uh, started his, his pre- uh, presentation, people would approach him and probably tell their own stories of monsters and hauntings. <laughs> really? <laughs> now people have raised their hand and tell their story. It's more socially acceptable, Lewis said. We really crave some type of venture. You can go to the same hotels and restaurants and you don't know what city you're in. So people are looking for that little adventure. That's something different to seek out. Yet strange creatures appear in local folklore throughout recorded history. There's a long history of beliefs in giants, particularly in North America and among some Native American populations, said Zora Zimmerman, who sought folklore classes at Iowa State University. A legend has a cycle, usually starting with very real eyewitness accounts that may be true but are unexplained, so the legend grows. Lewis grew up near Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where several UFO signs bubbled up in the 1960s and 1970s. When I first when I started, I was just fascinated with what makes people believe it or not. Over the years, it changed a bit. Now I'm just interested in cause and as the effect, he said. After nearly 20 years, I'm left with more questions than answers. Every time I have a theory or explanation, I'm back to zero. Uh, in other words, he didn't dismiss the possibility. Lewis Rain? Yeah. Lewis Rain, through the likely scenario, a hoax was dismissed. What dressed up prankster could survive the firepower? A strange, unknown creature could have emerged from the mines, but there was no proof of it. He's still hoping the plaster cast is a Van Meter addict. Attic. It was an error when anyone was possible. Anything was possible. It was an error when anything was possible. Science was starting to gain momentum. In fact, they had just discovered the mountain gorilla. So the beast in the jungle was real, he said. People were open to the fact that anything could happen. He found little more than the legend, but in visiting the mine location, he also found unease. John Jungleman, Jungleman, is a former, is a, sorry, John Jungman is a farmer who owns a pasture where the coal mine is covered up. He took Lewis out to examine it. He told Lewis he always had a funny feeling about... He told Lewis he always had a funny feeling about the place, but his son John laughed it off. We called it to the... We called it the Brickyard Monster, he said. He's making it... He's... He's making it sensational. It's a funny legend and all that. Fun to scare the kids or a campfire story. Others take a more scientific approach in their skepticism. Matthew Sharps, a professor of psychology of California State University, Fransco, 
We search searches eyewitness memory and says one person accounts grows as it is passed on. The story becomes part of the memory. Obviously, these things aren't real, but people really seem see them. So they behave toward them as though they are real. They are eyewitnesses, eyewitness memory errors, he said. People with tendencies toward depression, attention, def, uh, deficit, hyperactivity, hyperactive. ADHD? Yeah, something like that. Okay, I guess it's... Uh, Something like HGHD or, or whatever. Yeah. I'm more prone to see UFOs or creatures. His research shows that the encounters can be harmful. It can be a life-changing experience. They go around telling people and they think you are crazy. So now I've got to prove Bigfoot is there. Now I'm driving around with American Bigfoot Projects Project printed on my van and telling my wife I'll be done as soon as I find Bigfoot. Huh. Lewis doesn't seem so, see the harm. I sure I went over well with his wife. Lewis doesn't see the harm. In fact, even though he said he's unsure what happened those fall nights in 1903 in Van Meter, seeking the answer was more important than finding it. His weird legends can rekindle interest in local history, such as coal mining and old brickyards and help understanding the lifestyle and the mindset of citizens back then. It can even be a tourist drawn. The people of Van Meter saved this story for the results for the rest of us, he said. They are doomed to it, I guess. So, uh, 1903, they seemed like a giant thing on top of a building. And a bunch of people came out and shot at it. All right. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Well, and they got, how did he get his... Guess made a cast or something? Oh, they did it with uh, footprints in the ground. Yeah. They made a, they had like, what, three toes? There was, there was two of them. There was like, a little one and a little, there was a big one and a little one. It's tail glow. So those weren't, they weren't, it was like a dragon, right? Yeah. Kinda. Kind of like a demon, thing, like a demon or something. Demon dragon looking thing. Could come from the mine. Well, they never killed it, right? Still be there, people. Maybe. Don't do no coal mining anytime lately. <laughs> anytime soon, right? Now? Yeah. Uh, when the month of October gets close to the end of its 31st day run, Many people prepared themselves to deal with a variety of costume monsters approaching the doors, ringing the barrels, barrels, ringing the bells, bells, and asking for candy. What most people don't expect, though, is to have a deal with a real-life monster, especially one that caused its costume rivals to stay inside on the one night where a monster could truly be roaming the streets. But that's exactly what happened in October of 1975, just north of Rockridge, Iowa. The first official reported sightings of this unknown creature that would go on to be known as the Lockridge Monster took place on October 3rd, 1975. Herbert Pfeiffer, a turkey farmer, along with his wife and son, went out as the sun was setting to tend to his turkeys before retiring for a day. While driving out to, his, to the pens the birds were kept in, Mr. Pfeiffer caught sight of something on four legs 
passing in front of the headlights on his tractor. Why is this pen so far away? It's like driving a tractor to his turkey pens. I don't know. That's stupid, right? Yeah. This is like really, like, uh, assuming it was a predator that really broke into his turkey pens the past few nights and killed multiple birds each time, Herbert kept driving forward. Suddenly, this unknown creature stood up on his, to his hind legs and darted out of the way of the approaching tractor. Shocked, Mr. Piper returned to his home to inform his wife of what he had just encountered. The man stated that he had saw a bushy, dark-haired creature that stood nearly five feet tall, ran like a man, had a body shape of a bear, and ape like a face. Had ape like face. Well, Bigfoot. Maybe, yeah. Sounds like a Bigfoot to me. Yeah, sounds like Sasquatch. The following morning, the Piper family went out to inspect the turkey pens. While I did not encounter the creature again, they did find a series of odd 10 inch tracks where the bodies of four freshly killed turkeys. Uh, after helping clean up the dead birds, Mrs. Piper made her way back to the home. But as she passed an apple tree on her property, she noticed something odd. There in front of her, still attached to their branches, were multiple apples with bites taken out of them. It was understandably strange to find half-eaten apples still on the tree. What made it even more strange was the fact that apples were hanging on branches nearly seven feet off the ground. The Piper, Piper was obviously upset about what they had witnessed, had experienced poorer signs as one would expect. But what they didn't expect was the doing so, other witnesses' strange events in the area would come forward as well. Many hunters in the area reported finding strange-looking tracks along stream edges and on stand bars along Turkey Creek. One even claimed to have been hunting close to the edge of the Piper's property a few weeks prior to the incident when he came, when he saw an unknown creature in the fields. A man who carried a camera with him while hunting tried to snap a photo of the beast, but was unsuccessful in doing so. So it, as it disappeared from view, as he was focusing the lens, others who came forward spoke of hearing odd sounds while in the woods around the property. While a hunting party was set up to try and flush the creature out of the surrounding woods. No progress was ever made in doing so. Tracks continued to be found, but no monster was ever captured. The creature was never seen in the area again. Now, while many believe the above encounter to be the first official sighting of the Rockridge monster, few known of a possible sighting that took place only a month before in July. In the same general area as the Pifers, there lived a couple by the name of Wendell and Gloria Olson. While out in the area, the couple claimed to have seen an upright, bushy-haired creature with the face of a monkey lurking around the buildings of a deserted farm. Dude, that's creepy. Sasquatch. Sasquatch. There's a little fucking guy that's going around like, hey. What is that? <laughs> From a distance, the couple watched as the creature went in and out of undulated structures before walking back into the woods. Ollie, this sighting did not become as popular as the one that took place on October 3rd. So, what could the Lockridge monster be? Many feel that it was nothing more than a black bear that traveled down from Wisconsin and made it temporary home in the area around the Piper's turkey farm. While not native to Iowa, it is not unheard of for a rogue bear to travel from an adjacent state, take advantage of a plentiful food source, and then move on again. This may explain why the deported tracks and sounds from the area were not easily identifiable to hunters in the area. Is so not so easily explained as the, are the apples found eaten at seven foot on, mm. on a tree that described ape like face of the creature and mm. its reportedly ability to, to run like a man. Okay, uh, for one, it wouldn't be a bear because it had a uh, ape 
looking face. Yeah. Um, for two, um, it'd have to be an awful big bear to be like putting its head up to bite apples. Well, he's, and usually they use their. It's like knock them out. I don't know how you would eat them without pulling them down. Pull them down. Yeah, you'd have to hold it. Then. Yeah. And then walking in the woods on two legs. Well, bears do that too. Well, bears do that too, but they're not going to walk into the woods on two legs. They'll jump down on their fours and take off. Yeah. For the most part, I would think. That's my opinion. That's just my personal opinion. Oh, well, these big words. Okabugee Lake. Is in Dickinson County in northwest Iowa. It is a part of a chain of lakes known as Iowa Great Lakes. The east, the east lake is said to be not very deep, with a depth of 22 feet. The west lake, however, is estimated to be 140 feet deep. They are described as glossal potholes. A remnant of Ice Age 12,000 years ago. The towns of Spirit Lake and Okabuji sit on the shore. Apparently, it has a monster within the lake. It describes a giant fish with a head the size of a bowling ball. What? And as being a dark green color, Opojoki as it's been nicknamed by local residents, has been reported brushing against the sides of the lake users' boats for many years. Okay, and one of the first, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Bartlett, Bartlett, sorry, were at the lake a few days ago on a fishing excursion. They saw something, or rather saw where something was. They had no idea what it was. It might have been a sea serpent, or it might have been some kind of fish that had grown to unusual, extraordinary size. They were out in the lake in a boat when they noticed a short distance from them a terrible commotion in the water. The thing, whatever it was, was moving quite rapidly through the water and quite close to the top and had an appearance of being as large as an overturn skiff it made waves so large that mr bartlett was really alarmed fearing that would swamp fearing they would swamp his boat he does not pretend to know what it was and declare he would not have believed there was such a creature in the lake had he not seen it with his own eyes the commotion made by it. Huh? Then there is also this. One day, June 23rd, my family and I went on vacation at Lake Okabuji. I guess that's how you pronounce it. In Iowa. We were at a small resort with a dock. I must make this clear first. Okabuji is a huge lake. This lake was naturally made multiple dozens of thousands of years ago. And it is undoubtedly hundreds of feet deep and possibly hundreds of acres from shore to shore. Anyways, my two children and I 
110 and 113 were sitting on the dock eating some ice cream cones, looking at the water. It was a calm evening, probably about 7.30, so it was still light outside, but just starting, starting to darken. The water was still like glass with ripples only from passing boats. No fancy boats, just normally cheap little things, and none came anywhere near close to us. When my 13-year-old daughter nudged me in the arm and told me to look here and pointed at a weakened spot in the water, it was churning, almost creating a small whirlpool, a massive bump. Well, okay, it wasn't that big, but it was bigger than anything I wanted to see. Slowly and gracefully rose out a one foot, about one foot away from the churning water, then it moved quickly about two to three feet and rapidly went back under. I remember it didn't have scales like a fish, more like a snake, or maybe it was some kind of pattern that made it look like scales. It was dark, dark, dark greenish or blue, and we were playfully freaked out while we watched for more not nothing about the safety of, for us. Then we saw a head, a very good-sized oval or sphere, a big, a bit bigger than a bowling ball, but it wasn't perfectly round. It was like a lizard or a horse's head. The head arose. It could see, I could see it had the same pattern and color as the hump I had previously seen. It had its head out and about two inches of its neck, and it swam very, very, very quickly through the water. The only part of its body that made the wake was its head, and I knew the creature must have been big, so it must have had a fairly long neck for its body to not disturb the surface. It swam probably a dozen yards, and then its mouth opened. It appeared to take a gulp of air. Then it went under. Just a Split second later, I saw the small hump roll under the water. Then I saw the last part of its tail. It was fairly stumpy tail. Splashed out. My children and I were too dumbfounded to say or do much. Then we saw its head again, and it was coming toward our dock, about one to two feet away from the dock supports, the poles that hold it up. It went under. Less than a second later, we felt a huge bump and a large thud sound. The dock shook violently for a few seconds, but then time, by this time, we were terrified. We ran back to the shore as fast as we could. So what was it? I think it may have been a Wells catfish. It is a scaleless fish, and depending on its environment, can be green, brown in color. It is recognizable by its broad, flat head and wide mouth. They can live for 30 years and will eat anything and can grow to enormous sizes. What does anyone else think? I know fish are an unknown... Uh, what does anyone else think? I know a known fish or an unknown monster. What do you think? I think it said it was... How big? Its head was the size of a bowling ball.
A catfish get that big. Yeah, they get that big, don't they? But it had a hump on its back. Well, it could be the thing. What was catfish? What was, what was catfish doing in Ohio? First historically documented in the early 1670s by European explorer Jacques McKee and Louis Jolette, the area of land which would eventually be known as the state of Iowa went through a rather hectic establishment. Originally claimed by France from 1699 to till 1762, the land eventually made its way in the hands of Spain, remaining under control of the Spaniards until 1800. Area once again shifted ownership, this time to Napoleon Bonaparte, who took control of not only it, but also an additional 828,000 square miles of land west of the Mississippi River. This mass of land was collectively known as the Louisiana Territory and would be under the ownership of Napoleon for France until 1803. In 1803, the relatively young United States, only 27 years old at the time, then led by President Thomas Jefferson, purchased the entire territory from Napoleon for $15 million. Uh, 258,697,425.53 cents in today's money. Uh, after the first consul of the French Republic began expressing fears of the possibility of future conflicts and renewed war within the UK, when all was said and done, this gigantic land purchase practically doubted the size, double the size of the country and would forever be known as the Louisiana Purchase. Over time, the purchase was broken up into smaller territories, which was eventually through constant bordering tweaking, going to become 12 individual states. These include Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and of course, Iowa. After nearly four three years from the initial Louisiana Purchase and only eight years after its settlement at the Iowa Territory, the 58,000 square mile piece of land known as Iowa was granted statehood on December 28, 1846. Since that time, a rich history filled with many notable events has taken place within the borders of the Hawkeye State. Some of these events include the birth of William Frederick Cody, aka Buffalo Bill, in 1846, establishment of the Iowa State Fair in 1850, the arrival of Samuel Langhorne Clemens, aka Mark Twain, in the city of Muscatine in 1854, robbing of Obocock Bank by Jesse James and its gain in 1871. Destruction brought on by 17 hailstones falling in Dubois in 1882, and the first attempt oh, whatever, whatever word, <laughs> which took place in America in Davenport by Dr. William W. Grant in 1885. There's one event which is believed to have occurred in Iowa in 1884 that will not be found in on any list documenting the state's interesting history. A strange and terrifying event that resulted in the death of countless livestock in the hands of a strange aquatic beast and brought together both man and monster in a fight to death. An amazing event that is forever known as the South Skunk River Monster Battle. The story begins in 8, November 1884 on a farm located around 5 miles from the city of Oskaloosa and situated not far from the South Skunk River. The farm, which was owned by a Mr. James Wright, was a hog farm, and was said to possess roughly 100 swine prior to the incident. That's a lot of pigs. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of pigs? How many? A hundred. Not really. Not too many for a pig farm. For a pig farmer. A lot for like here. 
Yeah, well, in my backyard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two would be enough in my backyard. Uh, these pokers were noted as ranging in size from 250 pounds to nearly 400 pounds. Some big pigs. That's how big they get. An area in which they were kept was said to be roughly 102 feet away from the edge of the river. The hog's designated roaming zone was secured by a thick barbed wire fence that had a massive timber post located every six feet around the perimeter. The only way into the pens was through a single entry point located opposite the riverside. To top it all off, Farmer Wright employed a loyal bulldog to watch over the hogs and drive away any potential threats that should find themselves in close proximity to the fence. All in all, the livestock which resided, which resided on the Wright farm were kept safe and out of harm's way. That is until the night of November 14th, though. At some point during a chilly night, one of the farmers writes massive hogs had simply gone missing. Upon checking the area and what was discovered that the fence was fully intact and no secondary exit was present in which the hog could have escaped. It appeared the hog had just vanished into thin air. At no point during the night was the bulldog alarmed at an unwelcome intruder and no signs of in the pen to signify any occasion of some sort. Everything was found as it should be. The only thing wrong was that the hog was gone. That sucks. Fucking damn. What happened? Uh, the surrounding area was searched to no avail and other farmers and areas had not seen or heard a large pig. So there was nothing Wright could do except continue on his duties and hope that the hogs would eventually return. As the day turned to night and the night back into day, Farmer Wright awoke in hopes of seeing his missing hogs wandering around once again near the pen which housed his cranes. Unfortunately, this was not to be, and strangely enough, instead of getting his missing hog, he actually lost another one. The circumstances surrounding the second animal were identical to the first one. Zero disturbances or signs of a break-in, so it appeared to have simply vanished like the first. Obviously upset, Farmer Wright set up yet again to search for the swine, search for the swine, and conversed with his fellow countrymen on if they had any information. But just as before, the answers were less than satisfactory, and the farmer had to return to his land. Now two hogs down. Well, usually if something bothers a hog, you'll Get, know it. Careful, you're. You hear me? Yeah. If something bothers a hog, you'll know it because they squeal. Yeah. So that's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Sucks up. It's like damn money you fucking disappearing. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to December 4th and Farmer Wright is now missing a total of 20 hogs. Oh. Dang, that's a lot of money. With all previous attempts to find the missing hogs having failed, the farmer decides to give it one last shot. If he cannot solve the mystery and lose one more hog during the night, he has made the decision to pack it in and move the farm. Wow. It's, a, it's not easy back then. I think I would be. That evening, Farmer Wright bundles up to spend the night outdoors near the river's yeah. edge in order to watch the hogs pen from a different angle. He grabs his lantern, his rifle, and monster motions for his loyal bulldog to follow suit. The two make their way towards an area particularly concealed by thick brush trees and shrubbery and settle in for a long watch. Yep. Uh, the farmer... The farmstead is covered in darkness and a frigid wind has moved into the area. December 4th, yeah. It, yeah, it sucks. It's fucking cold. free. It's cold. Yeah. It's cold as shit. It's 20 hogs down. It's like, I mean, I got one. The farmstead is covered. Uh, all seems normal as it should be as a house ticked by 
hours tick by. Farmer Wright, growing more tired as the night passes through without incident, begins to drift off with his dog by his side. The only sound disrupting the silence are the hogs rummaging around the pens, and all the intense splashing coming from the Skunk River. None of these noises are enough to fight off the exhaustion, though, and soon the farmer is claimed as yet another victim of the infamous Sandman. The remainder of the night passes by like normal. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred around the farm, which was noticeable enough to arouse the farmer from his slumber. For all intents and purposes, both the man and the bulldog had a very peaceful sleep, but then, as the sun began to rise, the sound of splashing started once again. The farmer, now slowly getting to shift from his night sleeping against a tree, tried to open his eyes in the direction of the river and was instantly shocked by what he saw. From out of the river and onto the bank came an absolutely massive creature with a long neck, thick body, and huge teeth. The beast, which Farmer Wright had never once seen in the area before, slowly moved toward on four legs out of the river and towards the hog pen. Appearing to employ some sort of sneak tactic, the giant creature continued forward quietly in a snail's pace, with his head and neck held high, not giving any indication of its intent. The hogs, obviously not showing any concern at the approaching danger, continued about their business without care in the world. The creature, whose bulky body was now only a few feet away from the border fence, slowly rose onto its back legs and stood silent and motionless with his head and neck held high above the pen. Farmer Wright, who was still sealed by the thick brush, watched silently with his eyes wide and a firm hand wrapped tightly around the mouth of the dog in order to prevent it from giving away the location of their hiding spot. Suddenly, and without any indication, the large creature shot its head down into the pen, opened its large tooth-filled mouth, and picked up a 300-pound hog from below. With the speed and ferocity of what could only be compared to that of a bear trap, the bear snapped his jaws around the body of the hog, and an unlucky swan immediately went limp. Oh. The unknown creature, unknown river creature, then quickly shot its head back up high over the pen, lowered its back onto all fours, began to move backward away from the fence. The limp body of the dead hog disappeared within the large mouth of, in an instant, it was gone. Appearing satisfied with its meal, the large creature quick, quickly turned towards the direction of the river and began to run back to the safety of the dark, muddy water. Within just a few seconds, the beast reached the water's edge, disappeared with a large splash, and just like that, it was gone. The entire sighting lasted only a few minutes, and as soon as it was over, both Farmer Wright and his both dogs sprinted out of the bushes and back towards the safety of the farmhouse. After taking some time to compose himself, Farmer Wright headed towards Okulusa to alert the authorities of what he had seen emerge from the river only a few miles away. Once there, a crowd naturally began to form around the farmer as he described in great detail the monster he had witnessed with his own eyes. The Skunk River monster was described by Farmer Wright as being nearly 78 feet long. Damn. Big. That's big. Long from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. The estimated length of his neck was 18 feet. The distance between the four legs and the hind legs were was 40 feet. Wow. And the tail was believed to be 20 feet. The creature's legs were described as being three feet long, were roughly as thick as a grown man's body. The diameter of the body appeared to be around four or five feet, and while walking, the creature appeared to stand only seven to eight feet tall. The creature looked as if they were 17 inches long. The teeth looked as if they were 17 inches long. It was unknown if the skin was actually scaly or just looked incredibly rough. 
While nobody in the crowd knew whether to leave him or, or laugh at him at first, they still began to trust the words of the shaking farmer as he urged him to come to his farm and see for themselves. He assured them that they could easily brush off his words without a second thought, that they could not so easily be able to brush off what they would see with their own eyes. The farmer let everyone know where his farm was located and proceeded back alone to figure out how to raise his property on the monster. But he wouldn't be alone for long, because after only an hour, around 40 men on horseback arrived at the farm with weapons and hands and enough ammo to bring down a small army. Yeah. Not long after their arrival, around 100 more individuals arrived on foot to also help land a hand and bring down the monster who had turned to right farm to his own personal buffet. With the guns in hand and eyes focused intensely on the water, a large posse of amateur monster hunters spread out along the bank of the South Skunk River. The men on foot stood equal distance apart like fence posts, so as not to miss anything that may be swim by, while the men on horseback patrolled back and forth like generals keeping watch over the troops. While still not fully sure of what exactly they were looking for, the men scanned the water for something that appeared called and out of place, and after nearly two hours, they spotted something. Spotted roughly a mile away from the farm, one of the men spotted what appeared to be the back of a large creature slowly moving through the water. Immediately recognizing that what he was witnessing was not a normal animal, the lone gunman shouted for every available man to hurry towards his location. With rifles loaded and aim taken, several men fired multiple shots at the creature's back as it moved slowly through the water. Yet after the smoke had cleared, it was apparent that none of the shots had managed to pierce the thick skin of the creature. What it did though was cause the red creature to change direction and move slowly towards the bank of the river. Okay. Let's get so it, tur- it was going after the men? It, or it just turned around? I don't know. I think it was, sorry, going to, it was I guess it was going down the river and they saw it. The guy saw it. He's like, hey, come over here. I see you. And he's they watched them shot at it and like it didn't do anything except let them. And it's, it's probably it, pissed him off. Probably pissed him off, yeah. So then he turned around? Started going to the riverbank. The same bank in which they were all standing. Okay. Yeah. They were, got, so he's fixing to eat all the guys. Like, hey, you're... You're hurt. Um, I have to get you away from me. Okay, so what happened? Unaware of what was about to occur, the man standing alongside the river watched as the massive beast moved slowly, practically at a snail's pace, closer and closer to where they were standing. Even though only a small portion of its back was still was all that could be seen above the surface, those who were looking upon it appeared hypnotized by the simple fact that they were gazing upon a true monster. Thus, in a dangerous situation, the onlookers were unknowingly putting themselves in. A man on horseback by the name of William T. Smith rode up in front of the group in order to push them back away from the water's edge. While doing so, he had inadvertently put himself in a direct line of fire for what have what was about to happen next? Without warning, much like how it occurred at the hog pen, the, creature, the creature's large neck, head, and neck shot forward from under the water and snapped around the head of the horse ridden by Smith. God. So we ate the freaking horse. With incredible strength, the horse was lifted <laughs> off the bank by the creature and pulled forward into the water. Smith, who at the time was holding on to the reins of the horse, Prior to his unfortunate attack, was taken right along with it. Oh. Lucky for Smith, though, only a few minutes prior to the incident, another man on horseback by the name of John Aiken had ridden up alongside him. 
As the unlucky horse was made into a quick meal for the creature, it can reach out and grab onto the high leg of Smith. A Smith. I saved the guy. When the horse was lifted, it can pull Smith off the creature and down onto the muddy bank. With a large splash and a sound of cracking bones, the man watched as the monster pulled the horse below the surface and completely disappeared from view. God. Can you imagine that? No, I wouldn't want to see that for sure. Poor horse. Ate him. <laughs> Never knew what ate him. Imagine like you're on a horse. God, it's scary. But just because the actual body of the creature could not be seen, that didn't mean the men on shore could not follow it. Large ripples and splashes on the surface would clearly indicate where the creature was was at to everyone who was looking for it. Not knowing what kind of danger the creature ultimately possessed, Every available man on shore with a weapon fired at the creature whenever possible. Both rifles and revolvers kept a steady onslaught upon the creature, and at one point it was estimated that nearly 2,000 shots had been fired at the creature. It wasn't really good because he was in the water. Well, still, it could if his back was up, they could have hit it. But obviously, but you'd think him being full, he wouldn't, he'd just go away. He already it, ate it, like how many pigs and now a horse? Hello? What? Freaking, He's got a big he, appetite. Those big freaking monsters, like 70 feet. But just as before, when the smoke had cleared and the ammo ran low, the man on shore could see clearly that no shot had penetrated the thick skin of the river beast. At that moment, they knew that the sides of their bullets were of no use against a creature of such immense size and of thick skin. Their realization left them with only one other option. They were going to have to get bigger weapons. At 3 p.m., Word was sent back to Ukulusa <coughs> that a large weapon was needed at the right farm in order to take care of the monster problem. At 4 p.m., a 12-pound cannon yeah, and an entire keg of railroad spikes arrived. The cannon was occupied by a man referred to as Captain Wilbur. It was loaded with powder and packed full of heavy railroad spikes. When packed to the approval of the captain, the cannon was moved into a fire position near the edge of the river. After being brought up to speed on the current situation regarding the creature and from having first-hand knowledge of battle from leading the 23rd Indiana, Indiana Battery in Atlanta campaign during the Civil War, Captain Wilbur knew the enemy in the water was not going to willingly come near shore during a constant attack for the past few hours. So in order to bring the beast in, Captain Orderman along to bridge along to river to basically retreat. But instead of leading completely, they were to hole to back up enough so they would no longer visible to the creature in the water. And after all the um picated, after all had picated from the line of sight, the small impromptu army hunkered down and waited. Finally at five twenty PM after nearly an hour and a half of waiting, the creature made his presence known yet again with its large back broke the surface of the water. Captain Wilbur watched as a large beast made its way through the river and approached what appeared to be a decent sized sandbar, roughly forty feet away. Making an obsession that the creature was going to try and pass over the shoal, the captain ordered the cannon aimed at that particular area, notified the gunner to be ready to fire. Anxious, the man watched the waver the water with sharp focus and prayed the captain was correct in his assumption. They would only get one opportunity to do this right. Proving himself as a knowledgeable man with when it came to battle, Captain Wilbur's assumption was ultimately correct. The creature had fully committed to exiting the water and climbing up and over the raised sandbar, thus putting himself in a direct line of fire of the cannon. Without any hesitation, Captain Wilbur ordered a gunner to fire, and with a blast of smoke and a mighty roar, the 
cannon shot forward at barrage of railroad spikes directly towards the monster. Almost immediately, the beast let out a loud wall wail and began to thrash around wildly. Sand and water flew into air with every hit from its powerful tail, and blood poured from the deep wounds behind its front legs and it slowly turned the river red. After only a few minutes, it appeared that all remnants of life had faded in the creature. It was nothing more than an empty shell of the terror it once was. Fully confident that the monster was no more than the man on shore brought in a team of 24 oxen in order to haul the large body out of the river and onto dry land. With chains wrapped around the head, neck, and behind the front legs, the powerful herd slowly pulled the giant beast out from its former watery home and onto solid ground. Blood continued to pour out from the wound and filled the deep grooves the creature body had created in both the sand and dirt as it was pulled by the team. The two eventually ceased and before the hour of 6 p.m. it was recognized throughout Muskoka County that the citizens of Uzcla had officially killed a monster. The body of the beast now able to be seen in all its glory. Accurate measurements could firstly be taken. On seeing to document the size and appearance of the creature was a doctor huntsman and an owl swam. Together the man took notes regarding both the outside appearance of the creature as well as the state of the internal organs. When the examination was complete, the men were in possession of what was considered to be the most accurate information on the monster thus far. The entire overall length of the creature was known as being 81 feet long, from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail. The distance of the four legs to the nose were 21 feet. God dang, this has been... This is between the four legs and the hind legs, 40 feet. This is from the hind legs to the tip of the tail, 20 feet. The skin was noted as being like that of a giant, gigantic lizard, incredibly thick and dark gray in color. The teeth were measured at 17.5 inches and were like those of an alligator. The heart was said to be weighed 80 pounds and possessed four chambers. The lungs had all and all organs looked remarkably similar to other known reptiles except they were much larger. Creature appeared to be strictly an air breather, but from the testimony of the witnesses and noticeable size of the lungs, it was able to hold its breath under the water for extended periods of time. A quick examination provided assumptions that no bullet had pierced the thick skin, and only when the president was that of the cannon fire. After examination by Huntsman and Swain was complete, the job of skinning the creature was commenced. The plan was said to send the monster's hide to Oskola Textermis and have the creature stuffed. When that was complete, the session could be seen to the Academy of Natural Science located in Philadelphia for display. The skeleton of the creature would be preserved separately and wired for display in Ogulisa. Also, the city wanted to hold on to this trophy in commemoration of what was without doubt the most famous battle to take, ever take place near its borders. So, when it was all said and done, the two displays were packaged up and sent to the final locations to be enjoyed by curious onlookers for years to come, except we all know the river. That never happened. While the accounts of the Battle of the South Skunk River in 1884 makes an absolute fantastic story, there is sadly no proof that the incredible event happened at all. You see, as we, as we mentioned before in past articles, fictional accounts of both monsters and the battles that killed them ran rampant throughout newspapers in the 1800s. Stories such as these were later classified as yellow jur- journalism and were oftentimes created to help raise slumber newspaper sales. Full ended paid space during a slow news week or rain sites the years on lookers to a specific location in order to help boost a local economy. 
A majority of the time, traveling writers who excelled in creating fantastical stories such as these sold the story to a random newspaper in a one-time deal and moved on without ever providing a follow-up. This is why so many monster stories featured in papers in the 19th century never appeared to offer any final answers to a casual reader regarding questions they also had after reading larger-than-life accounts found within. But even though most of these fictional stories came from writers specifically hired to do, to do them, they were not always the case. Sometimes stories were written from the very same people who ran the paper in the first place. Case in point is South Skunk River Monster. The blade had been created by none other than Al Swam himself. If that name sounds always familiar to you, it's because you just read about him not even five paragraphs above. He was, created, he was reported as one of the men who examined the creature after its death. What the story fails to mention, though, is that when Mr. Swan was not busy examining dead monster bodies, he was busy operating the Skull Weekly Herald newspaper, both as the co-owner and as the editor. See, at the time when a monster battle was said to have taken place in 1884, Mr. Swan was known around Oglosa as a seasonal practical joker. If we're able to compare him to anyone, it would be outrageous to describe him as Iowa's version of Wisconsin's most famous practical joker, Mr. Eugene Shepard himself. And as most readers of the, the PBI already know, Mr. Shepard is ranked among the best of them, so to be compared to him as is pretty much an honor in, in our eyes. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. Okay. Now, while the above may seem like a pretty straightforward answer as to where the story of River Monster came from, you may be wondering where we gathered this, that smoking gun information. All truth be told, you should be asking this question. It's only logical to question everything or to have the best information moving forward. That's what we do, and we assume many others do it as well. So when it came to time to figure out where the background information on Mr. Swamp came from, we found ourselves on an unexpected path that in turn leads to an unexpected source. What we found was the gold finch. You know that last line above comes across as a sort of dramatic. It seems almost like the alias of a villain in an old spy movie. But in reality, it was something much cooler. You see, the gold finch was a quarterly published historical magazine for children put out by the State Historical Society of Iowa starting in 1975 and running until the year 2000. It's issue focused on a specific theme and is comprised of historical articles, games, photos, and fictional stories. Some of the themes that could be found throughout the magazine runs include famous island inventors, toys and games, distinct symbols, the environment, early explorers, and even an entire issue on corn. But the but that but the one that caught our eye specifically was the one published in the spring of nineteen ninety nine. The one Whose thing for a season was showcased in tight black letters, top of red background, the one slipping tide, myth and legends. Within the 33 page, pages of the stories, crossword puzzles, and legends of buried treasure compiled for children between the ages of 8 and 13, there was a story on page 27 titled On a Trail of an Iowa Sea Monster. This four page story talked about the legend of the South Skunk River Monster and even went so far as to talk about the search to whether or not it was a genuine event. Or nothing but fiction. During their investigation, the Goldfinch got in touch with local newspaper editors, librarians, archivists, and historical society members. What they discovered, when all was said and done, was 
where local discrepancies between the original Poe story and the actual st- history of Okaloosa and the surrounding area. Some of this, these errors touch on subjects like the weather at the time, the locations of certain areas mentioned in the original article, and even the reputations of some of the men listed by name during the original publishing. It went so far as to get confirmation that the Academy of National Science in Philadelphia never received a stuffed river monster in 1884, and they even settled on possible motivators for the creation of the story itself by Swam. That motivator, if you can believe it, was politics. So, when it was all said and done, at the end of the day, we are pretty comfortable with chalking the entire story of the South Skunk River monster up to nothing but a clever hoax. But as we always say, just because the events of the story may be nothing but fiction, that doesn't mean the story itself is any less fun. What these stories set out to do during the original publishing date was to entertain the readers and provide an escape from the monotony of everyday life. And they without a doubt succeeded. And honestly, they all still succeed to this day, as people of all ages still thoroughly enjoy reading about these supposed real encounters with monstrous beasts. We highly doubt that the writers of these stories ever thought they would go on to be anything more than this means of a paycheck, let alone still read over a hundred years later with the same awe and wonder. But as goes to show, even though you might wake up thinking that what you do won't make history, you still may inadvertently become one of the most enjoyable parts of it and that is pretty darn amazing. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why reluctantly codependent sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Uh, the story of a crow. Uh, NCS case file number 49. Most crow sighted in Iowa, submitted by caller... Location near U.S. Highway 30 between Marshalltown and Nevada, Iowa. Mid date is mid October 2009. I was driving with a good friend and roommate, headed west bound for my hometown for a reunion. It was mid morning and the sun was behind us. The countryside there, like most of central Iowa, was is cornfields, but the corn had been picked and fields were passing. We were passing were just full of dried, broken corn stalks. Movement in the corner of my eye attracted my attention. I turned to see a huge black bird flying low, five to six feet above the ground and fast over the fields to our right. That is on the south side of the highway. It was flying to the southwest as we drove due west. It had to have just flown almost directly over the car. When I first saw it, it was no more than 20 feet from us. Look at that, I said to my roommate. Pointing at slow, slowing my way down. He saw it and asked, What kind of bird is that? It's huge. In all specs, though, other than size, it looked exactly like a crow or raven, but much larger. And it was flying faster than I've ever seen either of those birds fly. Had a good view of it, the swingspan, as it flew at an angle away from us. And a decent scale in the rows of two, three, 
two to three foot tall corn stubble to pair to it. A wingspan approximately eight feet, and unlike any other large birds I've observed flying before, this was flapping its wings very rapidly. I had slowed down when I saw it and went about 100 yards away from us. It turned due west and paralleled our route, staying right with the car, essentially pacing us for about a quarter of a mile. I saw it in profile then, and this affirmed my first impression that it looked exactly like a huge crow or raven. I have seen golden and bald eagles in flight and was not neither of those. Either of those. We remarked on how fast it was flying and I checked the spawner. We were doing 3-4 miles per hour and was staying neck and neck with our vehicle. It suddenly climbed then swooped over a heavy line of trees at the edge of the field then. Dropped down on the other side of them and we lost sight of it. Well, oh, okay. All right, let's go. Uh, uh, that's it. That's it. Uh, I'm gonna watch this game. It's a balls on. Okay. Yeah, I gotta see. Huh? Uh, what? yeah, I gotta. What are you doing on Facebook? Uh, Tyler, you look pretty comfortable. Yeah. Dogs on the bed. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legends Podcast, Monster Legends of Iowa. You can listen to Monster Legends Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public. You may join the Facebook group on Facebook at Monster Lens Podcast. Follow on Twitter at Monster Lens P. If you want to submit a story or contact me about being a guest on the show, please send an email to Monster Lens Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't 
win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 